Welcome, everybody, to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. I am Corey at Dopinephrine on the Internet, and with me, as always these days, is Scott. He is at El Deuterino. You can get him on Twitter and on Periscope. I really encourage you guys to take note of that. It is E-L-D-U-D-E-I-R-E-N-O. Give him a follow on Twitter. Give him a follow on Periscope. We're going to be having uh, uh, some extended conversation throughout the week, uh, and we really want you guys to engage with him. We also want to thank Young Athlon 399, who's hosting us on uh, Periscope this evening. Um, and we want to thank Cat is Cat for helping us with some of the uh, some of the, some of the questions. She's directing some of those our way because we can't be uh, in four places at once, even in front of a screen. So she helps us with uh, with getting some of the questions in front of our eyes in case we miss them. Tonight is a very exciting episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about the concept of sin. This is something uh, that exists in a lot of theologies. Uh, we definitely want to encourage you to call in and talk with us if you would like. Uh, the phone number to reach us is 646-564-9551. Some other exciting news, we got our YouTube channel up this week. And so in addition to being able to get us on iTunes and listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, you can listen to our previous broadcasts. Um, on YouTube as well. We are uh, the Informed Secular Minds podcast on there, and I will tweet out a link on the uh, ISM Twitter uh, after, after the show uh, wraps up this evening. Before we jump into the concept of sin, there's been a couple of things in the news that um, I wanted to get to briefly. Um, the first one is a comment that was made. I'm, I'm just going to read from an article on the Huffington Post. Uh, this is uh, titled, Michigan GOP official calls for another Kent state for campus protesters. Uh, this appeared on um, February 4th. And it reads, a Republican Party official in northern Michigan has issued what amounts to a death threat against American college protesters, calling for another Kent state in the wake of protests at the University of California, Berkeley. In 1970, members of the Ohio National Guard fired on unarmed Kent State University students protesting the U.S. incursion into Cambodia. Guardsmen killed four students and wounded nine, including one who was paralyzed for life. Dan Adamini, former chair and current secretary of the Marquette County Republican Party, indicated that a single death might be sufficient to end student protests this time around. I'm thinking another Kent State might be the only solution... Protests stopped after only one death, he posted on Facebook on Thursday. They do it because they know there are no consequences yet. He also tweeted, violent protesters who shut down free speech, time for another Kent State perhaps. One bullet stops a lot of thuggery. Now, the comment ignited outrage. Adamini's comments are sickening, inhuman, and indefensible, said Brandon Dillon, chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. Uh, there is no ambiguity or alternative interpretation to call for another Kent state and declare that one bullet stops a lot of thuggery is to clearly and openly advocate for the murder of unarmed college students simply because they don't share his beliefs or point of view. Uh, he called for Adamini to apologize and resign from the GOP. Now, it's the, it's the Republican response that really amazes me here. Doreen DeCalo a member of the Marquette Republican, uh, County Republican Party, insisted to the Marquette Mining Journal, we've always been a peaceful group, adding that the majority of us do not advocate for violence. DeCalo said she suspected Adamini has, uh, hadn't meant it exactly the way he said it. So, Scott, here we have a situation where 
free speech, um, something that is protected in the Constitution, should be discouraged through the act of violence from the government on students. Right. Uh, didn't you say something um, something like uh, they, they're doing it right now because there's no consequence for it? Precisely. Students don't know that there's a consequence yet. If they did, if a few of them knew that by protesting they might get shot, maybe fewer people would protest. Which is a, the entire idea of a protest is to be able to do it without fear of consequence. That's the notion of a right in this country. Um, this, is, this is deeply, deeply troubling to me, um, and I think that while this isn't necessarily happening on a national, on a national uh, level, um, it says a lot about where, where we are, at least where some of us are. Uh, it's also very troubling to me that, that the Republican Party there in, um, in Marquette County would say that the majority of us do not advocate violence as if that makes it okay. Since the majority of us don't do it, that's okay. You're a political party. You're in power in this country. You hold majority support in, the, in, in all the branches of government. The majority of us do not advocate for violence is not enough. Anybody who's advocating for violence in a political party that has dominance in the legislative branch of our government should be cut out. You need to get rid of these people from your party and completely disassociate from them. It's deeply troubling to me, and I think it should be deeply troubling to everyone else as well. Um, now, we also should talk a little bit about Betsy DeVos. After all, we are a secular show, and we are concerned with the separation of church and state. Uh, we are concerned with upholding the notions enshrined in the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I'm going to read from a couple of sources here. NBC News, this, 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 is, this is more funny than anything. President-elect Donald Trump's nominee for education secretary told lawmakers at her confirmation hearing that guns might have a place in schools due to the threat from grizzly bears. Billionaire philanthropist Betsy DeVos faced tough questions during Tuesday's session, uh, refused to rule out removing funding public schools if appointed, and admitted her family may have made donations to the Republican Party totaling $200 million. Democrat Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who has been vocal on gun control in the wake of the Sandy Hook massacre, asked DeVos, if she thought firearms had any place in or around schools. She said, I think it's best left to locals and states to decide. Pressed on whether she would say definitely if guns shouldn't be allowed in schools, she referred to an earlier remark by Senator Mike Enzi from Wyoming, our home state, who mentioned an elementary school in Wapiti, Wyoming, that had erected a fence to protect children from wildlife. She said, I think probably there, I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. Now, um, Part of why I'm saying this is because uh, it, it made the news. Um, uh, the, the grizzly thing was trending on Twitter. It's kind of, it's kind of a silly thing uh, to avoid the question by talking about this very, very small school. But part of why I'm bringing it up is that Wapiti is like 20 minutes from me. Where I live, Wapiti is like right next door. If I go to uh, Yellowstone National Park, which I do fairly frequently, I drive right through Wapiti. It's between me and the east entrance um, of Yellowstone National Park. So it's, it's interesting that this tiny little community um, that is, is 
barely remarkable right next door to where I'm, where I'm at got, uh, got injected right into a Senate hearing. Uh, I find that interesting, but let's talk about, let's talk about Betsy DeVos when it comes to um, secularism, when it comes to enforcing the separation of church and state and how very much she would like to erode that idea. Um, a little bit of background. DeVos attended Calvin College, a Christian reform school in Michigan, and has made significant donations to her alma mater. Uh, prior to that, she went to Holland Christian High School, a Christian reform school in her hometown. I'm going to read from Politico. They, uh, they got some information um, from her. The billionaire philanthropist whom Donald Trump has tapped to lead the education department once compared her work in education reform to a biblical battleground where she wants to, quote, advance God's kingdom. Trump's pick, Betsy DeVos, a national leader of the school choice movement, has pursued that work in large part by spending millions to promote the use of taxpayer dollars on private and religious schools. Her comments came from a 2001 meeting of The Gathering, an annual conference of some of the country's wealthiest Christians. DeVos and her husband, Dick, were interviewed a year after voters rejected a Michigan ballot initiative to change the state's constitution to allow public money to be spent on private and religious schools, which the DeVosses had backed. In an interview, an audio recording, which was obtained by Politico, the couple is candid about how their Christian faith drives their efforts to reform American education. School choice, they say, leads to greater kingdom gain. The two also lament that public schools have displaced the church as the center of communities, and they cite school choice as a way to reverse that troubling trend. The audio from the private gathering, though 15 years old, offers a rare behind-the-scenes glimpse of DeVos's personal views, views that may guide her decision-making as the nation's top education official. DeVos has repeatedly said she wants policies that give families choices about their children's education. The choice of public schools included... But her critics fear that her goal is to shift public funding from already beleaguered traditional public schools to private and religious schools. Um, now, this is going to be the person who is in charge of the education department for the entire country, the top official when we talk about education. We have public education because we generally agree that it is valuable, especially in the modern era, to teach younger generations about basic knowledge before they become adults so that they are well-equipped to handle uh, an intricate world. Um, the, the, the point here is to give them knowledge, mathematics, uh, history, English, the basics, so that they are well-prepared for adult life. Um, Betsy DeVos and uh, her husband, they don't, they don't really see that as the goal. Um, the DeVos family are billionaires, but in the interview, Betsy DeVos said that rather than just give money to boost Christian schools, she's fighting to change the whole system because there aren't enough philanthropic dollars in America to fund what is currently the need in education. Betsy DeVos also described her efforts using the biblical term Shephelah, uh, an area where battles, including between David and Goliath, were fought in the Old Testament. Our desire is to be in that Shephelah. And to confront the culture in which we all live today in ways that will continue to help advance God's kingdom, but not to stay in our own faith territory. Not to stay in our own faith territory. That's a quote from this person. Those who know DeVos say her goals are not sinister, though they acknowledge the policies are likely to advance uh, 
what would benefit Christian schools. In fact, Trump's $20 billion school choice program that would allow low-income students to select private or charter schools was devised with the help of the, advo- of the advocacy group DeVos headed until recently. The DeVos's efforts in education are principally motivated by their religious beliefs. At a conference for wealthy Christians called The Gathering, according to Politico, it goes back to what I mentioned, the concept of really being active in the shefala of our culture, to impact our culture in ways that are not the traditional funding, the Christian organizational roots, but that really may have greater kingdom gain in the long run by changing the way we approach things, in this case, the system of education in the country. The church, which ought to be, in our view, far more central to the life of the community, has been displaced by the public school as the center for activity, the center for what goes on in the community. It is certainly our hope that churches would continue no matter what the environment, whether there's government funding someday through tax credits or vouchers or some other mechanism or whatever it may be, that more and more churches will get more and more active and engaged in education. We can think of no better way to rebuild our families and our communities. This is, again, to use the word, incredibly troubling. She thinks that what we're supposed to be doing, that the goal of the education department, of education in America, should be to reduce its secularization and instead make it second tier to churches and advocate Christian teachings through education. She wants churches involved in public education. If anybody is not really, really worried about this, you need to check your pulse. All right, you got anything to add to that, Scott? Uh, No, I think you said it all. (laughs) That is just the idea alone that you just want to change the basic idea of what America is supposed to be is what that feels like to me, and it's just... Uh, Robert was asking if I have uh, bear problems in my parts. Um, well, uh, not personally. I've never, I've never, uh, you know, like like been attacked by a bear. I've seen them. Uh, there, there are a lot of grizzly bears where I live in the mountains around here, and I do have a, a good friend who has a cabin uh, about um, thirty minutes from where I from where I live, um, right up in the mountains. And uh, one winter, or this is probably a decade ago. Um, a grizzly bear broke into that cabin uh, when there was nobody around uh, just like broke through the door and got in their kitchen and like trashed the place trying to get food. Um, and then, you know, wandered back out again. They showed up and the whole thing was trash. They had to, they had to fix it all up. But uh, uh, no, I, I, I rarely hear about people getting attacked by grizzlies. It does happen. A few people die in this region from grizzly attacks every year, but for the most part, you just prepare for it. You know, you can carry a bell, some bear spray, which is like super pepper spray. And uh, generally, they will uh, they will leave you alone if they know you are uh, you are coming. Do you have any grizzly bears down there, Scott? No, no bears around here. Okay, yeah, they seem to like the mountains. There's a lot of them in Yellowstone. Um, in fact, they're trying to push some legislation that would allow people to uh, hunt them. Um, some um, uh, possibly even inside Yellowstone, uh, let people have so many licenses a year to go uh, to go kill grizzlies. I wonder if. Uh, if that'll actually happen or not. Okay. I think that we are ready to begin the main topic of the show. 
Thank you, everybody, for bearing with me as I talked about politics, but that is a serious secular issue, and I encourage all of you to, uh, to keep that on your radar. Um, Scott, why don't you get us started? Uh, give, us, give us a bit of an introduction to, uh, to this entire uh, idea of sin. Uh, well, for me, <clears throat> the, the bigger question is, does sin exist? And then it, it, it starts to uh, starts to mix with morals and moral absolutes. And so, but, but the idea of sin in religion, the idea of certain things being against a deity's preference in how we behave. And then for that, we are punished. Um, but we're created by this deity to be this certain way. So it seems to be a trap. It seems that sin is just being a human. And that's what I'd like to explore. Right. Sin seems to be rather inherent. Um, It's often defined as something that uh, impedes one's relationship with God, um, which, of course, relies on the fact that there would indeed be a God. So it presupposes that there is that there is a God, Um, a claim for which there is no there is no evidence. Sin exists in a lot of the major religions. This isn't just uh, a Christian idea, though uh, we'll probably focus a little more on, on, on Christian ideas of sin just because, you know, in our culture, that's the, that's the easiest to understand. Um, give, us, give us a little bit of the, of the etymology of, uh, of where this word comes from. So the word derives from the Old English sin, S-Y-N, for the original sunjo, um, S-U-N-J-O. The stem may be related to that of Latin sons or sant, which is guilty. In Old English, there are examples of the original general sense, offense, wrongdoing, misdeed. The English biblical term translated as sin, S-I-N, or sin, S-Y-N, from the biblical Greek and Jewish terms, sometimes originate from the words in the latter languages denoting the act or state of missing the mark. The original sense of New Testament Greek, sin is failure, being in error, missing the mark, especially in spear throwing. Sin originates in archery and literally refers to missing the gold at the center of a target, but hitting the target, i.e. error. So we, we, for the narrative of sin, we have to presuppose a God, um, not just any God, but a God that is interested in our day-to-day activities. Uh, a, a deistic God, for example, wouldn't care about sin. This would have to be an interfering God. And then we also have to presuppose that we should want to please this God, that, that our mission in life should be to um, worship and, and do his will. Would you agree with that? That's exactly the, the point I wanted to, to point out tonight, uh, is that the idea of, of sin, some kind of a, a moral action that we are supposed to perform because that's what God wants us to do. And it's important to do what God wants us to do because after doing that, we get rewarded with this idea of heaven. But only if I want the heaven 
in the first place, or do I believe in the God's existence in the first place? Does that make the sin something that I should worry about doing or not? Aha. Uh-huh. Right. So sin would be um, uh, something to be avoided in order to please God. Um, sin sin is a, is, a, is a crime against God, not necessarily a crime against man. It can be both, but a sin by definition is something that harms your relationship with God or is a, a crime that you could commit uh, right. that, would, that, would, that would harm God. Now, now, God is supposed to be all-powerful and all-knowing. Interesting to me that so many people think his, his feelings can be hurt by what mere mortals that he has complete power over do. Right, what they do or what they say, that somehow the, the supreme being, the, the almighty creator, has such fragile feelings that using his name in vain, he just can't deal with it. We are atheists, so that means that we don't believe in, in gods. And since we don't believe in gods, we don't believe that there are actions that can hurt that god. So we don't believe in sin in, in, in this definition. I mean, we believe in right and wrong. We believe that there is, uh, that there is, is good and bad behavior. Um, but we don't believe that what we're doing harms a deity. If, however, well, there... No, I'm sorry. Please continue. Um, all right. The, the, the most common narrative that I've been exposed to when it comes to sin is the Christian narrative, which suggests that we should want to please uh, this particular God. Now, I don't believe in this particular God, but if he actually existed, we have these books that are supposed to teach us what this God wants and, and tells us something about who he is. Um, it, it certainly is far from perfect, and a lot of people will say you can't know God, but there is um, quite a bit of writing that, that kind of contradicts that. It says that we can know some things about God, maybe not everything, but God wants us to understand a lot of stuff about him. Um, Scott, there's a, there's, a, there's a quote here that we got from uh, Richard Dawkins. Do you want to share that with the audience? Yes, this is from uh, the God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Um, I've heard that one a few times. Uh, that is a that is a a powerful powerful quote, and it does a pretty good job of defining this particular character. Um, that's that's pretty accurate, based on um, even even just a, just a passing reading of the Bible. It's um, it's pretty obvious that we can that we can draw all of those understandings and apply all those labels to to this character, this this Yahweh, this Jehovah. Is there any good reason that you can think of that we should want to please this character? 
No, and and the reason why I put the quote in there um, is because the majority of time that God is behaving those ways is when he is punishing these so-called sins that we're not supposed to do. Mm. We talked uh, on, on was it Friday, when we did the, the one-off episode for Truth Pursuit? Right. Um, and we talked about uh, Noah's Ark in that episode. Um, and Noah's Ark, according to the Bible, uh, the, well, the Great Flood anyway, was, was sent by God to punish sin. Right. The wickedness of the world, the sin of man. This narrative suggests that man had become so sinful that it was completely pervasive. Everybody, save for the eight people that end up on the ark, every single person was so sinful that there was no turning back. They were so sinful that the only option left to God was to kill them all, to completely wipe out the human species, save for the, the Noah and his family. Um, and that would be, you know, when he becomes genocidal. He's, he's very, very, uh, according to this narrative, jealous and quick to anger and um, is completely okay with punishing people with, with horrific death, including the, the babies and the, and the pregnant women and, and the children, all of them because of sin, because he's upset at man's uh, penchant for sinning. And this goes back to that he's the all perfect. So he's he's perfect in every way. He's benevolent. He's pure love. He's um, all knowing and 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 ever present, omnipresent, and yet created an imperfect, a flawed creation, flawed in the way that wants to do these things that he is against. They're they're just not part of his nature, and yet. He had to have known he was doing that, that it was going to go south at some point. He had to know the future. And it also suggested he wasn't perfect, because if he was, he wouldn't have created a flawed creature in the first place. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Um, a lot of times I've heard people counter that with the entire uh, – with the idea of free will, that sin only occurs because man has free will. Um, of course, if God is all knowing, then he would know exactly what would happen. Right. Um, when, when does, when does sin begin? What's the, what's the, what's the origin of this? The Adam in the tree, Eve in the right. garden of Eden. There's this. There's this earlier narrative. We, we, we started with Noah, but we're going to backtrack a little bit. Genesis starts off with, with talking about um, you know, the, the, the formation of the earth. And then, of course, uh, God creates Adam. Um, sort of forgets to make him a woman there for a minute. Uh, notices right. that Adam is Whoops. lonely. Yeah, little little slight oversight there. I mean. remember that the genitals needed to go somewhere in order to procreate. Right. Um, realizes that he's, that he's messed up. 
sees his oversight, sees that Adam is lonely, and then decides to take one of Adam's ribs and creates Eve. Now, in the garden, God puts a tree, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this tree bears fruit, and God says, you can, you can have whatever you want. The whole garden is yours. Um, you, can, you can name the animals. You can eat whatever you want. The only thing that you're not allowed to do, the only thing, is you can't eat from this tree. But he puts the tree right there in the garden. Right. Why build it? Why make the tree in the first place? I mean, you could have, you could have, right. You could and have just. I've argued this point so many times, and I know several other people have. Um, it's the, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the understanding of right from wrong. So when he tells them don't do it, basically that would be wrong. They don't have any concept of that. They don't understand wrong or right. So don't do it. That's wrong. That's a forbidden. That's something you shouldn't do. That isn't right. Is not something they could even grasp prior to eating of the tree. Right. What would they? What would they? Where would their perspective come from on what wrong means? It would be a word without definition. God says, "If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die." Now he he could have put that tree somewhere inaccessible. He could have avoided making it in the first place. He could have made it completely uh, unappealing, but instead he puts this delicious fruit right there, completely within reach, and then says, don't do it because it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you don't want to know that stuff. You will then gain an understanding of what is right and wrong, but if you do it, you will be doing something that is not right but is indeed wrong. They don't have the knowledge yet, but God expects them to have an understanding that the tree alone can give them. It's, it's kind of a broken and sadistic narrative from the get-go. Now, he tells them that if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. The serpent says there, – there's a, there's, a, there's a serpent in case anybody isn't familiar with the story. There's a serpent in the garden of Eden. Oh, by the way, big right. snake. <laughs> he talks. I should – yeah, he can't really talk. Yep, you know snakes. They got vocal cords. Um, the snake tries to tempt them and says, if you, if you eat of the fruit, you, you should eat of the fruit, and you won't surely die. Uh, God was wrong about that. And Adam and Well, Eve, God lied about that. Isn't that a sin? It could be, it could be, it could be a lie. Uh, and this, and this, is, this is the touchy point for a theist because they then eat of the fruit, committing original sin, and they don't die. Adam lives to be like 930 years old. So the apologist, the Christian apologist says, well, he wouldn't have died ever. God ever. didn't mean you will surely die right there on the spot. You will surely die, but until you ate of that fruit, you would have been immortal. So there was going to be no heaven reward thing. There was going to be no sin that needed to be reward of heaven because not, it was just going to be perfect and nothing was ever going to die. Nothing, nothing this was, is would where um, Ken Ham and other young earth creationists say things like um, predators, you know, like tigers in the garden were vegetarians and their teeth are sharp just for chewing up you know, hard leaves. 
Right. There was right. no no predation uh, amongst the animal kingdom or anything else, and everything just lived forever. But that is a broken model because everything would procreate. He made male and female procreation, and everything would procreate, and nothing would ever die. And sooner or later, the planet would be nothing but layers upon layers of people and animals. Right. So if they had never eaten the fruit, what would have happened? If they'd have listened to him, it, it's not a working model. God's own mechanics rely on the fact that sin is going to occur. Yeah, they have to. He needs them to eat the fruit or it doesn't work. If they couldn't die, then why were they eating in the first place? Yeah, exactly. Why did God equip them with digestive systems? Why do they even have mouths? He made aside them communication. Sure, he right aside from communication, he he provided them with the means to sin, and then gave them the ultimate temptation to sin. But the only reason that they would need to eat is to sustain themselves, which would not have been a need. Not a need. Presumably, he also gave them immune systems. He doesn't say that he altered their, their, their biology after he took them out of the garden, just that he changed the dynamics. This is when I was saying earlier that it's, it's basically just being a human. You can't be a human without committing one of these quote-unquote sins. And it's, it's what religions, all religions, do is claim natural things as their own. If it's good... Yes, that's of our God. He did that. That's why you like that, and that's why that's awesome. And if it's bad, that's of the opposition to our God. And if you follow that way, you will be uh, it, it will be bad for you, and you will be separated from the God, and then you won't get these rewards. They claim just the state of humanity, just the human condition, as belonging solely to and oftentimes created by their deity, and without subscribing to this deity's dogma, you are broken. You are broken from the get-go. And the only way to get fixed is through this. Mm. What Adam and Eve did was, was, it's commonly referred to as original sin. And God punishes them by taking them out of the garden. He, uh, childbirth painful for women, and he makes uh, uh, man have to toil in order to, to, to get food. He makes it difficult for him to have to toil the fields and, and gain food. He basically curses him to have to work for a living. Um, now, that was a decision that Adam and Eve made, but it's called original sin because every single person after that fact is born guilty of their sin. It's the ultimate in um, you are convicted by the actions of your father or of your mother. This is a very common theme, especially in Christianity. Yeah, the um, the idea of punishing generations down the line for the sins of the father or the mother, and a lot of times punishing the female for the sins of the male. Um, oh those, yes. Those traits and that quote from Richard Dawkins that I said earlier is nineteen traits of God, and Dawkins obviously read the Bible, the Old Testament, and saw all those traits and stood by it. It wasn't making just a claim, you know, a, a void claim, but it had substantiation. And he often wanted to 
create some kind of like a picture, he said, with like a hyperlink that you'd click on malevolent or, or uh, genocidal, and it would take you to all the Bible, you know, links of like the Bible passages where it supports that God had that, you know, personality, that trait. And what he ended up doing was having Dan Barker write a book um, titled God, the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. And then do oh, that wow. exact thing. Chapter after chapter is just the first of those 19 traits on through the 19th. And a, um, then a reference to every Bible passage that supports that behavior in God. Wow. Wow. I don't have a copy of that. I should, uh, I should look into that would be, that would be an interesting read. I think it is fantastic. And Dan Barker, if you don't know, was a, a minister for 19 years before he became an atheist and now has done, now is in the eighties and now has done several debates as an atheist, uh, supporting secular worldview. Yeah. I've seen a few of his debates on YouTube. Um, I've seen him, uh, do some work there where he'll, he'll engage with, uh, with various apologists, um, in a formal setting. It's, uh, it's interesting to watch. Um, now, okay. So you've got original sin and then, and then, you know, God kicks him out of the garden and then generations go by and everybody becomes so, so sinful um, that he has to kill them all. He kills every single person on the planet, except for Noah and his family. And then kind of thinks, well, I don't want to ever do that again. That was, that was maybe a step too far and says, I'll never, I'll never commit genocide again against mankind, which is, which is nice. Isn't that, isn't that sweet? Right. That's uh, sweet of him. Yeah. I can sure appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks God for not, for not committing genocide again because of sin that you need in order for your mechanics to work. Um, and then, you know, after, after the flood, we have like 150 years, like not very long at all. Uh, a few people have, have been born. There's a few more generations and the people decide to build uh, a great tower. They want to get up and, and be like closer to God. And these very, very ancient cultures uh, got together, these, these, these old societies, and they decided that they were going to build this grand tower. Now, as we know, especially with the technology at the time, you're not going to get anywhere near the atmosphere, let alone wherever they thought God existed, by building with rocks and, and hammers and the, and the limited tools that they had at the time. But God still gets mad at this. He sees it as a sin because he thinks that man is trying to be kind of almost equal with him. They're trying to reach where God is and God's, you know, doesn't want anybody on his lawn kind of. Um, and so his, his punishment for this attempt at building the tower of Babel is to um, scramble all the languages. He, he, he confuses the languages and makes, you know, some people speak, uh, I, I, I don't know, Aramaic and, and, and Hebrew and, and Arabic and whatever other languages were around. This is God's punishment for this, this other sin is to, is to make everybody confused so that they can't work together. And they, yeah, they can't communicate to... anymore. Yeah. Just because they, when they were unified, they tried to reach God and that's, that's unacceptable. So he makes it so that humanity will inherently be unable to be uh, wholly cooperative in the future because of different cultures and languages. Wow. There's another theme at work here, and that is every time this perfect being, this perfect deity 
does something with this creation, he fails. When he created him to be perfect and not sinful, he failed, and they sinned anyway, and they ate of the fruit, and they didn't listen to him. And then when he's like, all right, I punish you with, you know, you have to, for Adam, you have to till the land for Eve's childbirth is going to suck. Um, directly after that, they're, they're kids. One of their, their kids, one of them kills the other one. And so he gives him a punishment for sin and why he's sinning against me. My perfect creation, I'm so perfect. And then you get Noah, and then you get the Tower of Babel over and over again. He fails, and what he does to correct his failure fails. And it just keeps failing. If he's all-knowing, why does he not know that this isn't going to work for very long and think, well, I'll try something else or I won't bother with the genocide? Or the punishments or the system. I mean, he, he also presumably knows that one day, since he knows everything, that one day uh, Jesus is going to come along and change the entire narrative. But he yeah, doesn't get around to that for another couple thousand years. And then that still doesn't work. And it still doesn't work, right. Okay. Many, many years later, um, there's a guy named Moses. And he leads the Israelites out of bondage from Egypt and into the desert where they, you know, are lost for a while and finally eventually get to the promised land. But during that, that story, Moses climbs up a mountain to talk to God alone without anybody else there, talks to God directly. Um, well, directly through, through the, the image of a burning bush um, and is given directly from God, the 10 commandments uh, this is supposed to be the the rules that the that the tribes of Israel should before they're actually the tribes of Israel should follow um, in order to to avoid sin in order to follow what God wants and be pleasing um, unto Him. What confuses me about this is they were human beings before they arrived before they got the Ten Commandments on the stone slabs. Is the suggestion here that they didn't know? That they thought that, that everything on the Ten Commandments was totally okay before God told them? Right. They had been living in cities, civilizations, societies. It, it should have been pretty apparent to, to, to people that, that murdering each other is a bad thing. But God gives that as a commandment. I, I wonder if the story is supposed to suggest that people literally did not know that murdering was a bad thing before they got the commandments. Let's, uh, let's, let's read the Ten Commandments here. Um, give, us, give us the list if you would. What is, I, I don't have it right here in front of me. Okay, I got it here. Uh, the Ten Commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Right, right off the bat, uh, the very first commandment suggests that God is, is, is mostly concerned with keeping his jealousy under control. 
don't worship other gods. You got to worship me. No, nobody else. That's, that's a problem. I don't like that. Uh, number two, you shall not make idols. That's basically the exact same thing, isn't it? I'm, I'm jealous of other, of other gods, and if you make idols, you might worship those idols instead of me. I don't like that. Don't do it. That's, that's commandment number two. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, so treat him with some reverence. Don't, uh, don't, don't, it doesn't specifically say blaspheme. It, it just says, you know, uh, don't, take the, don't take the name in vain. Don't, don't use it casually because, again... I am jealous. Um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're supposed to work for for six days during the week, and then the seventh day you're supposed to you're supposed to take off from work. You're supposed to rest. Uh, various religions have have slightly different ideas about how the Sabbath should be recognized, um, but um, but that's that's a commandment. Don't a, if you work on the seventh day, that's a sin. There's something I never thought about with this one before. Uh, this is to this is what God did. This is to practice the God model, to be close to your God. Do what God did, where He um, He worked for the six days and then rested on the seventh. But as we just as you just mentioned, He got mad every other time they tried to be like Him. <laughs> right. Right. They tried yeah, to that's get a close to point. Him. Be close to me. Be like me. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. That's like me. I don't want you having that knowledge. I don't want I don't want you making a tower to come up here, but I need you to take the day off like I do. Right. Follow, follow, you know, be like me in some ways, but not, don't try to emulate me entirely. Um, that's a, that's a very, very good point. Um, that's a very good point. Uh, number five is honor your father and your mother. Um, and then we've got, we've got the, the, the later five there. Yeah. Uh, six is you shall not murder. Seven you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet. Now, right from number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Is he just talking about, like, uh, false gods? He, he knows that people are going to invent but, gods at some point, um, and you need to avoid that? Or is he acknowledging that there are other gods? He he's acknowledging that there are other gods, because there is a isn't there another um, part in the Bible where he actually uh, demonstrates to worshippers of another god, and I want to say Baal, but I, I could be wrong Baal. right now. I'm yeah, pretty sure you're that, right. Um, he he's a better god, and so him and that other god have a showdown, and he's like, "See, I'm better." Right. Even even if an apologist did say that what he's saying is that other cultures are going to uh, you know invent false gods like like the Egyptians might invent Horus and Isis and and the pagans are going to figure out their whole thing and the Greeks are going to come along and and all of this other all this other stuff. This certainly concludes that at least man has a deep propensity for making up gods. They've done it before; they'll do it again. Right. There, there's going to be – most gods are invented. Most gods are just, are just created. Why would we look at this and not think, well, what makes this one the real one? Right. If, if cultures apart, forever right – it does. If, if cultures for all time have been inventing various gods, and you're not supposed to worship any of them, just, just this one, 
then you're just saying that, that yours is better than everybody else's, but it's suggesting that gods are invented all the time. Why wouldn't this one also be invented? All right. Now, my biggest problem with this list um, is that it doesn't include... Well, it doesn't include rape. The first four, as you point out, are just about worshiping me the proper way. The fifth one, honor your mother and father, yeah, I guess if they deserve to be honored, but respect and honor is earned. It's not just given because a couple of people had sex. There are plenty yeah. of parents who don't deserve any honor. Just like just like a, a, a deity should be deserving of worship, it shouldn't just be implicit. Right. Um, you know, if your if your parents are abusive or neglectful, should they also be honored? Just like nurturing parents, it's well, odd that it, that's supposed to be inherent. It goes back to these are only sins if your in game they're only wrongdoing if the, if your in game is to be closer to this god or to want to go spend eternity with this god. But judging from his characteristics, the nineteen characteristics that that Dawkins pointed out, I even if this god was proven to exist. This God is not something that I would worship or follow or do anything he asked me to do. Yeah, I see very little motivation uh, to avoid sin in the first place. Um, I, I don't believe that it's an actual thing where you have this supernatural connection where by, by committing an actual act in the real world that you're somehow transgressing against a supernatural being that is posited as the prime mover of the universe. I, I already don't believe in that narrative. But if I did... I, you would need to demonstrate that this God, that I would want a relationship with this God, that I wouldn't want to hurt this God's feelings. And I don't know why I would be convinced of that according to this particular narrative. The, um, the Gnostics believe that, that, that um, the Christian God wasn't a God at all, that if he existed, he was a demon because he was petty and jealous and wanted worship and was egocentric and, and mean and violent. That it wasn't a god at all. Wow, wow. Now, when when I've I've made this point before about rape not being included, that that's slightly troubling to me. Um, and they say, well, it's implied in "You shall not commit adultery." Rape would be adultery. Um, and so it's it's it seems like you could have just done the eleven commandments at least. And right after adultery, uh, you shall not have non-consensual sex. That would, that would be, I think, beneficial. Um, just to clear it up, just to make it you know, real, real obvious to everybody, I, if you're going to take, take four just to talk about yourself and the way that you should be worshipped, you, know, you, could, you could do two about what actually harms people when it comes to, when it comes to sex. Uh, I mean, adultery has a definition. Rape has a different definition. To say that rape is implied in adultery when adultery – and harm people per se. That's the that's the distinction that we need to make. Then is is sin and and non sin are are they not doing sin? Is that goal to make the most happiness, the most beneficial environment for society to thrive in? Is that the goal, mm-hmm. or is it just something you shouldn't do because God said? Right. Is the right and wrong, is it right because God said it's right? Or is it right because it's right? 
Mm. And if it's right because it's right, then God is just a messenger. But if it's right because God says it's right, then is it is even something that's not beneficial to the society right? And that's what you should do. Does morality just just shift and change with God's mood? Um, is is he allowed to to you know not follow his own rules and just say that well it's immoral to kill? Um, I'm allowed to kill when I like, and it's moral in those cases. There's a there's an excellent um, video on YouTube. It's a few years old, six or seven years old, from Scott Clifton. His channel is Theoretical Bullshit, and uh, he has a video called Treaties on Morality. And I urge the listeners to listen to that video because it breaks down the right and wrongs of of like social standards, and then the right and wrongs of based from a religious viewpoint, a Christian viewpoint. It seems that there are plenty of – I don't think that we can define sin as, as, the, as the, um, the, the basis for, for morality. Avoiding sin does not in and of itself make somebody moral. You're concerned with pleasing a deity who doesn't need to subscribe or follow a morality because what he does must shift what is acceptable because he has this infinite power. If you some some sins hurt people, or or, or rather um, uh, following following these rules, following following avoiding things because you think that they are sins can hurt people in some right. cases. Not always, but it, it it does happen. And so we are we are stuck in a narrative in which self harm or harm to others is completely irrelevant. If what you're trying to do is actually please this God, it's more important to make God happy than it is to make sure that your well-being is is uh, you know on solid ground. Um, over the last two thousand years, you know, religions have, especially the monotheisms, have gained traction and become um, pretty powerful, pretty big organizations. And along with that, uh, especially the, the Christian church figured out the way to actually implement and deal with um, all of these sins. The Roman Catholics talk about uh, two kinds of sins. Um, Scott, what can you tell us about the two kinds of sin that the Roman Catholics uh, talk about? And these these two types of sins are encompassed under a um, a bigger umbrella of actual sin. So according to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, actual sin, as distinguished from original sin, which we covered earlier, is an act contrary to the will and law of God, whether by doing evil, sin of commission, or refraining from doing good, sin of omission. And the two types of sin are either mortal or venial. Or venial. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word. Mortal sin in Roman Catholic moral theology a can sin, a, a, is a sin considered to be more severe, is distinct from venial sin, somewhat similar to the secular common law distinction or classifying the severity of a crime 
as either a felony or a misdemeanor and must meet all the following conditions. Its subject must be grave or serious matter. It must be committed with full knowledge, both of the sin and of the gravity of the offense. Article 1860 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church specifies unintentional ignorance can diminish or even remove the imputability of a grave offense. But no one is deemed to be ignorant of the principles of the moral law, which are written in the conscience of every, or in the conscience of every man. The promptings of feelings and passions can also diminish the voluntary and free character of the offense, as can external pressures or pathological disorders, mental illness. Sin committed through malice by deliberate choice of evil is the gravest. It must be committed with deliberate and complete consent, enough for it to have been a personal decision to commit the sin. Article 1859 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church specifies Mortal sin requires full knowledge and complete consent. It, propers, it proposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act, of its opposition to God's law. It also implies a consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. Feigned ignorance and hardness of heart do not diminish, but rather increase the voluntary character of a sin. That's that's uh, the rundown of, of mortal sins, which are... Um, the 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 worst of the two venial would be uh, not quite as bad, right? Yeah, those are the misdemeanors. Okay, okay. Uh, give us a rundown of what venial sins are. Venial sin will not cause loss of heaven in itself, but can eventually lead to death of the soul by making the doer weaker to resisting mortal sin. It's a gateway drug. Sin is made venial in two ways. The sin is not seriously wrong, or the sin is seriously wrong, but the sinner honestly believes that it is only slightly wrong, or does not give full consent. A venial sin weakens our power to resist mortal sin, and a venial sin makes us deserving of God's punishments in this life or in purgatory. Yeah, I like um, I like thinking of it as a, as a bit of a gateway drug. Uh, if you're yeah. committing venial sin, you're, you're weaker um, in your attempts to resist mortal sins. I, I think that the the Catholics believe that mortal sins must be confessed in order to avoid um, hell or, or once upon a time uh, purgatory. Um, these were these were serious serious offenses that you needed to um, repent for in in one way or another. It was um, yeah the idea of confession. I, I brought this up when we were talking about Scientology. Um, the uh, the e meter. And then, you know, like talking out loud about the thing, you know, to the, uh, to the auditor, talking out loud about the thing that was on your mind that bothered you, somehow kind of, while doing it over the e-meter and being audited, somehow kind of relieved you of, of the worry about it. And then you were kind of free to, to improve as a person. And it kind of reminded me of a, a science fiction version of the Catholic Rosary, where you go and you confess to the person kind of face-to-face or sort of audited you tell him what's bothering you, what you did wrong, what you think is wrong about yourself. He tells you to pray on the rosary this many times. You hold that device in your hand and you do that thing and now you feel better about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the idea of confession, um, the process of that can certainly make someone feel better. Um, the question that I would have is, is why people are feeling guilty about, about most of the sins that are commonly committed. 
Um, you know, I, I understand why somebody would feel guilty about killing someone or, or, you know, but if you're, if you're feeling guilty because of, of a lustful thought and you then have to go and confess that, then you're trapped inside of a worldview in which you're made to feel guilty about things that naturally happen to you. Again, it's just human nature. I mean, how does one avoid something like coveting? That, that looks really awesome. I want that thing. Right. I want one of those. You shall not covet is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Coveting is a thought crime, first of all. Coveting is something that happens in your brain. You, you don't – there's no injury. You're not harming anybody. Now, if you were to then put that into action and use your 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 covetousness to uh, to make you steal go it. and and steal it, that you know that that you're harming someone there because that's somebody else's property. But just to admire somebody else's property and then and 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 think it wouldn't be nice if I had one of those, that's that's like the foundation of capitalism. That's what drives economies around the world. Um. There seems to be a little bit of questions about like what would be considered a venial sin and what be, would be considered a mortal sin. And, you know, like is adultery just a smaller sin and then that would lead to a mortal sin like murder. So I was just going to list a few of the things that the Catholic Church considers to be mortal sin. Fantastic. That is um, abortion, uh, adultery, apostasy, blasphemy. Um, cheating and unfair wages, contraception, defrauding a worker, divorce, drug usage, and less strictly therapeutic grounds, um, Freemasonry, envy, euthanasia, extreme anger, fornication, hatred, heresy, homosexual actions, incest, lying, masturbation, missing mass, murder, perjury, polygamy, pornography, practicing magic or sorcery, prostitution, rape, sacrilege, scandal, uh, suicide, terrorism, unjust prices. Those are all mortal sins for which you must confess or your soul will go to hell. How does one confess for committing suicide? Ah, that's one of those unforgivable ones i guess it must be unforgivable if you commit suicide there's no way to repent for that so i suppose that that you would you would forever be guilty of a unconfessed mortal sin we should we should probably we should probably examine this list and see where these would actually line up with things that are harmful. Um, because either, either God wants us to be well, God wants us to be uh, happy and healthy and, and he loves us or God is more interested in us not sinning against him than he is about our actual welfare.
Now, the first would be would be abortion. I don't I don't know how much we want to go into that. Neither of us is a woman. Um, right. That's something that that you know, in in my feeling, is between uh, you know a woman, perhaps her partner, making a, a personal decision, something that she would you know go to a doctor and talk about. Um, it's not. It's not something that I'm I'm completely comfortable jumping into just because, you know, I'm talking about women's bodies at this point. But you know, there are definitely it's a, it's occasions. It's alphabetical. That's where they. Yeah, started. it's just right. It's all alphabetical. Um, so it will end up hitting the, all the A's together. Um, the there are there are plenty of cases though where where abortion um, is done to save lives. To protect the welfare and the life of of a, of a woman moving forward, to keep her alive, if the if the child uh, if giving birth to a child would kill her, um, of course the the common political talk is always about abortion in the case of incest or of rape, um, which which a lot of people make an exception for. But abortion is often something that is that is positive for the for the pregnant woman. Um, well, another I'm, thing that's interesting to me on this is that abortion is there, but it's separate from murder. Oh. Murder is there separately. So why isn't it just inside of murder? Why is it a separate thing if it's seen as taking a human life? It says that it's an excommunication for this crime against human life. That's a very good point. But they are they are from murder. They are separate sins. So abortion would be different in the eyes of God, so why, then, why then are they making a distinction? Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't that that had not occurred to me. That is a very good point. Um, we've got uh, adultery. Now, adultery can hurt people emotionally. That's for sure. If if you if you cheat on your spouse, you know that's gonna that that you know that's a dick thing to do. Uh, if you're if you're committed to someone, if you're supposed to have fidelity, if you have promised that person that you're going to be monogamous with only them forever, then yeah, that's going to hurt that person. Uh, if you if you commit adultery, um, it's interesting to me though that that the idea here is that it's not something to avoid because it hurts the other person. It's something to avoid because it makes God mad. God's mad right. that you haven't been faithful. It's God. He he's not just saying avoid this so that you don't hurt your spouse. He's saying avoid this so you don't offend me. We also end up having um, – and, and in a similar way, how you just said that abortion and murder are separated. Uh, adultery is separated from things like pornography and masturbation. But whenever I bring up those points, I have been told by many theists that the reason that pornography and masturbation is wrong is because it's technically adultery. Yeah, again, separate – I want to see exactly what it says here. Um, adultery refers to the marital infidelity when two partners of whom at least one is married to another party have sexual relations, even transient ones. They commit adultery. Um, Christ condemns even adultery of mere desire. Even if of you just mere want desire. to do it. You just want to do it. Boy, Jim's wife is pretty hot. That's this, this, this really this, this frustrates me to no end. This idea that we are supposed to uh, condemn those who would dare indulge in lustful thinking, 
or would look at pornography or would masturbate. Biology happens. If you believe in God, then you believe that God made us to have lustful desires. Regardless of anything else, we are experiencing desire for other people. We have a, 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 a drive to procreate. That's and in us. And if, per- if we were created, it was put there by a creator. Then. Right. Once again, I've made you sick, and I'm commanding you to be well. I made you inherently sinful. But if you sin, if you do what I made your nature uh, to contain, then you are breaking my rules. This is, again, sadistic. Why would you create something that is filled with biologically driven desires and then tell them that they are not allowed to have those desires? What exactly is the grand concern about pornography? Pornography. Does grave injury to the dignity of its participants actors, vendors, and public, since each one becomes an object of base pleasure and illicit profit for others and immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world, it is a grave offense. It does grave harm. Viewing pornography does grave harm. There are all of these videos uh, online. I I think there have even been TV commercials by various churches talking about the, the rampant and terrible dangers of pornography. It's, you're going to become an addict. It's exactly like being, being addicted to something. It's, it's just it's so, it's so terrible to engage in pornography in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Now, if the argument is sometimes people end up being used or coerced into uh, allowing themselves to be filmed for the sake of pornography, I will grant you that. If you're trying to produce pornography at a rate where uh, you're, you're harming women or men uh, by making them engage in it, if you're, if you're doing some kind of human trafficking or whatever the case may be, yeah, that's harming people. That does grave harm. Right. That's sexual abuse. But, but that's, that's generally not how pornography is made, and that's why we have come up with regulations on that industry so that we can avoid that. Pornography is also and widely made with complete consent and because people want to make it or want to get paid for making it. There is a wide uh, appetite for pornography. I found um, some, some information because there, churches are obsessed with lust. They're obsessed with your sexuality and how you're doing it wrong and how the fact that you are interested in sex makes you bad unless you're doing it for procreation inside of a marriage. Pornography is not bad for you. It is not bad for you. They have done studies on this. Kind of good for you. There are, uh, there, are, there are a lot of, especially Christians, but also uh, Muslims, and I know that, that Mormons get hung up on this a lot, saying that when you engage in pornography, it's bad for your brain. It changes your brain chemistry over time. Uh, it, it's very distracting, and, and, and you can actually have like a long-term um, downside from viewing pornography. But they did a big, a big study on this and found out that that's not accurate at all, that the brain is not harmed um, from viewing pornography. And indeed, there are plenty of cases where it is completely healthy for you. It can increase sexual satisfaction. 
Um, it can help with fidelity, fidelity issues inside of a marriage. Um, it, can, it can provide an outlet for people that have particular fantasies that they can't actually act out. Uh, it can encourage a loving couple, uh, if they watch it together, to explore their own sexuality, to find what they like, to find what their partner likes, to spice up things in their own relationships. There are a lot of good reasons to watch pornography. The idea here that, that watching other naked people do stuff on a computer screen or in a magazine harms God makes zero sense to me. It certainly isn't about the welfare of people. It's about making sure that people aren't having too much fun with their genitals. It's again, and what you were saying earlier, the idea of the, the all-powerful being that is so, you know, thin-skinned that he could be taken down by the action of, you know, of his creation. And just doing what they do naturally. It's fine that they do it, procreate if they're married but they can't do it if they're not married to each other. And they certainly can't watch other people doing it. Yeah. I've had people tell me if you, if you watch, uh, if you, if you are, if you are sexually attracted to women and you watch pornography that involves women, then you're committing adultery in your heart because that person becomes your sexual partner mentally or digitally. And that is exactly the same thing as committing adultery. Come on. It's thought crime. It's thought crime. Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. This is this is don't give up the sovereignty of your relationship. Don't give up the sovereignty of your of your marriage. If you if you are with somebody and they have a problem with you watching pornography, have that discussion. Take that into consideration. But if your partner thinks that that's a completely healthy and normal thing for adults to engage in. Don't get all worried because God is watching you. For, for, for goodness sake, go after that. Engage in it. It's, it's, it's great. Porn is awesome. <laughs> well, and don't, don't pretend like uh, Corey and I are the only one keeping that billion-dollar-a-year industry going. <laughs> it's not just us. I mean, I'm doing my part. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my duty to make sure that pornography continues on. But no, it's, uh, it's, it's most people. Um, uh, same with uh, with masturbation. Masturbation is very, very, very common. Um, some studies go as high as 90% of males masturbate, uh, 75 to 80% of women masturbate on a regular basis. It, this is this is very, very common. Religion ends up having a couple of ideas about masturbation. One is the uh, adulterous side. By masturbating, you are engaging in sexual pleasure outside of with your sexual your mate your your wife or, or husband so it's bad for that reason others especially inside of uh, uh christianity will say that you are that that ev- like every sperm is sacred remember that uh yeah. where you, <laughs> when you when you on the ground right when you ejaculate that is a whole bunch of potential souls those are all god's children in there uh, and you're, you're spilling, you're wasting what God is potentially creating, and therefore to ejaculate anywhere but inside of, of your wife would be, uh, would be you know, a, a terrible and, or a horrendous thing to do because you're, you're killing God's potential children. Uh, that is so, so weird to me. Well, and if that's the case, then you've got to look at uh, the, the chances, like, something like 250 million sperm in, in every ejaculation. So uh, 
the majority of the time, even during regular missionary sex, if that's what they want you to have with your wife, you're killing more, way, way, way more sperm than you're making children. It's a very, very, very good point. Yeah, if if every sperm is is that important, um, then then why doesn't every uh, every ejaculation only contain one sperm? If they're all that important, but most yeah. of them die after after you orgasm. How 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 oddly inefficient for the intelligent creator of mankind right. and of the universe. Another, how how perfect another perfect aspect of his creation. It's very suspect. Let's um since we're already since we're already talking about sex, let's talk about homosexuality. Most monothe all monotheisms have a weird problem with gay people. They don't like it. They know where those nervy bits are supposed to go, and if you're doing it wrong, if you're doing it with another dude, or if you're a woman doing it with another woman, oh my gosh, that is so, so, so deeply wrong. There are people who are born, well, probably not directly at birth, but develop naturally to be gay. It's not a majority. It's not huge swaths of the population but there are gay people out there and for some reason when they try to fulfill their sexual desires in a natural and healthy and consensual way religious people lose their minds this is i don't know of another sin that 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 brings the the anger out in people more than Goddamn homosexuality. Churches and theists get so mad that other people are doing it in the butt. <laughs> My God. Can we all just fucking relax? It's sex. It's not that weird. It's completely common. It happens everywhere. Let's stop pretending like this God created billions of galaxies, trillions of planets, so that in one slice of time, in one corner of one galaxy on one planet, he could create one species of organism and then fuss over whether or not they're doing it with members of the opposite gender or members of their own gender. It's so stupid. And what it does is harm people that are gay. When you insist on creating an atmosphere, a cultural atmosphere in which they are seen as sinners, in which, in some cases, it's okay to kill them for being gay. You force them into a situation where they must deny who they are or they must try to do what they're doing in secret. You deny them the right to be a full member of society. They don't get to have the open, positive experience that straight people do. They don't get to just hold hands in public they don't get to openly proclaim that they are in love with someone. They have to keep it secret. We've got uh, a caller. Um, I'm not sure who we've got on the line, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to put them on for a moment. Thank you for calling Inform Secular Minds. What's your name? Hi, this is Chuck. How's it going, Chuck? It's not too bad. Um, 
wow, you put me through without uh, uh, any kind of, I could be naughty if I wanted to, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> no, this is, uh, this is an interesting question. When you, uh, when, when conservatives and, uh, uh, you know, really hardcore, uh, like, like especially evangelical Christians, when they think of gay people, they don't, they don't really think of the people themselves. They imagine the sex act itself. They, they have like the thought bubble over their, over their own heads and they imagine the, the physical act of a penis going into an anus. That's what they think of. They, that's all they think of. Hmm. Seriously. They don't think of anything else. They, and, and that is what disgusts them. They don't think of them as a person. They don't think of them as a member of the family and so forth. So, so you've, you've got to get into like a member of the family issue. Uh, it's like Dick Cheney. Why is Dick Cheney pro-gay? Because he has a, a pro-gay rights. Because he has a member of the family that is that is a, a you know that is uh, they, he has a daughter that is gay in this particular case. Well, in 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 these particular cases, you you run into situations where you have quote unquote good ones, right? It's mm. the same thing that we ran into with civil rights. It, and it's kind of sick when you think about it. it you, you have to humanize people uh, in, in exactly the same way. And because they are othered, you know what I mean? By othered, quote unquote, othered. Right. Uh, right. And they're, they're reduced to sex acts, not to people. Once they can identify but, as a loved one then it becomes a different story. But, but oftentimes they're also ostracized from the family and pushed away right. because they can't even make that leap. Right. But it's, but the whole problem overall is that it's not that they are viewed as humans, as people. It's that they're viewed as an act itself. Right. Action. They end up being boiled down to you. You are labeled based on your sin, my perception of your sin. What you're doing, I find icky and gross, and I think that you're pissing off God. Therefore, it gives me license to dehumanize you. Right. This is where the narrative, uh, the concept of sin gets dangerous and gets harmful. Very, very good That's just what allows people to kill them. That's all. Just wanted to... I just wanted to throw that in there and see what you thought. So thanks. We appreciate that. Thank you for calling, Chuck. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you. Always, always great to get to to get to talk to him. Uh, if you guys aren't following uh, Chuck, make sure that you're following at Joe Tenar on Twitter um, and on Periscope. Uh, he's a he's a he's a remarkable guy. Just he's so much fun. A very very intelligent. Um, and that's and that's a that's a very very good point. When when you end up when you end up thinking about just this, this gay act and something inside of you makes you think, I don't like that, then you end up judging people based on that. Who, who here would, would, would allow themselves to be judged and ostracized because of what they do in their bedroom? Get the fuck out. This is what I'm doing with the person that I love. I'm not committing any crimes here. I'm not doing anything that harms people. I'm engaging in consens- consensual sex with my chosen partner, and they are as well. Quit telling people. That, that their sexuality is, is bad. Sexuality is good for people. Exploring it is good for people. These, these prudish ideas have got to go. 
we should we should probably talk um, a little bit about a little bit about Jesus here. Uh, according to the uh, Christian faith, after after all of God's attempts to to reduce and eradicate sin fail, He finally sends Jesus along um, as his as his son, and Jesus eventually dies on the cross is is martyred. Um, and that that sacrifice that that death was sufficient for him to accept everybody's guilt everybody's sin into himself so that we wouldn't we wouldn't have to have to burn in hell for it anymore so that if we if we accept Jesus's gift of of accepting all of our sins on our behalf then we can get into um into heaven just because of that I've got a quote here from Christopher Hitchens. Let me have a drink of water real quick. He says, I find something repulsive about the idea of vicarious redemption. I would not throw my numberless sins onto a scapegoat and expect them to pass from me. We rightly sneer at the barbaric societies that practice this unpleasantness in its literal form. There's no moral value in the vicarious gesture anyway. As Thomas Paine pointed out, you may, if you wish, take on another man's debt, or even to take his place in prison. That would be self-sacrificing. But you may not assume his actual crimes as if they were your own. For one thing, you did not commit them and might have died rather than do so. For another, this impossible action would rob him of individual responsibility. So the whole apparatus of absolution and forgiveness strikes me as positively immoral, while the concept of revealed truth degrades the concept of free intelligence by purportedly relieving us of the hard task of working out the ethical principles for ourselves. When we talk about Jesus taking all of our sins away from us, it shifts it shifts the victimhood away from the person that you have harmed onto Jesus or onto God. We talked about this a little bit, but it's an important point. If I do something wrong and I believe that I can be forgiven by confessing it and getting forgiveness from, from Jesus, what precisely is my motivation to try to make amends with the person I've actually harmed? You can right, just be absolved. It, 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 it breaks it. – all I have to do if I do something wrong is get God's forgiveness for that through, through the sacrifice of, of Jesus, the so-called sacrifice of Jesus. It's not about the person who I harmed. It's about God. I think we can call that immoral. I think we can call that negative. The narrative of, of sin also ends up doing damage when we insist on telling children about it. Sin, after all, in our sinful nature is inside of monotheism. What makes us worthy of hell? From, from birth, you deserve hell, and you're only spared that because of the blood of Christ. He relieves you of the need to go 
to hell where you where you belong as a sinner, and instead can redeem you and allow you to go into heaven instead. This suggests that most people are going to go to hell because only those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior will make it into heaven. When you tell that to a child and insist that they believe it too, you're telling that child that they are more important than the other people in the world, that everyone else is the other. Your friends at school, maybe even your parents, most members of society, they are the other. All of those people, unless they think and believe and worship just like you, they're all going to burn for all time. If you've got a good friend at school and that person isn't exactly the same kind of Christian that you are, sorry, sweetheart, your little friend is going to burn for eternity with Satan. Few things are as disgusting to me as saddling a child with that kind of potential self-loathing and, and constant fear. It's absolutely nasty. The, the idea, it's, it's um, difficult for a lot of adults to shoulder that, that kind of burden. But asking a child that's barely coming online and figuring out the world around them in the first place, to understand that and, and try to be conscious of that all day long is gross. It's truly gross. It, 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 it teaches children that they need to be very worried about these completely natural instincts, these completely natural urges as they're reaching puberty, as they're entering adulthood, perhaps that, that maybe even they will go to hell because they are the way that they are. We had a fantastic debut episode of Truth Pursuit on Friday. It was, guys, it was so much fun. Um, we talked for, I mean, just shy of an hour we ended up doing. Yeah. Yeah, I had a great time in Noah's Ark. The story is just, it, it's nothing but entertaining. The idea of, of uh, and you can get that episode, it's still up on Blog Talk. Uh, radio, um, you can you can find it on iTunes, uh, and it's also up on our YouTube channel if you want to catch the replay. Um, we had a we had a great deal of fun with that one. The idea of the Truth Pursuit segment is to introduce something of a topic that we can uh, that we can discuss throughout the rest of the week. Um, and and Scott, you're going to be uh, engaging with people uh, specifically on this topic over the over the over the course of the week. Is that correct? Yes, that is the plan, to engage with the audience over uh, Twitter and Periscope a couple of times if we can get enough people in, uh, involved and interested. So please contact me on those platforms, and we will discuss it. And what is going to be the topic of our Truth Pursuit for this week? Tonight is Why Evolution is True. Evolution. Wanted to just, yeah, just want to discuss it a little bit about why it's scientific fact, why we need to adhere to it, and, and um, why 
you know, it should be the standard of science taught in schools, not equal to creationism, uh, et cetera. Okay, so why don't you get us started? Um, why? How? How do we? How? How are we able to determine that? That? And this is such a good topic because uh, few few things end up end up causing uh, more 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 conflict and anger uh, among among at least at least American Christians than the idea of evolution. I, I, I didn't I didn't come from no monkey, right? They get just right. really angry about this. Uh, this idea that, that that evolution is a thing that we can observe. Um, how can we how can we determine that evolution is actually a real thing? Uh, one thing we have enough genetic evidence to to show that it's a fact, um, even without the fossil evidence. If we had no fossils at all, it would still be 100 percent true. Uh, the fact that we have fossils at all is just icing on the cake. And um, things that we know about evolution are like if we found out anything new about evolution, it wouldn't change what we already know. It would just add to it. So it's a pretty established process. Um, one thing I, I wanted to talk about is that there seems to be in the, in the apologetic world or in the, in the theist, uh, you know, like you said, they just don't like it. They're just opposed to it. That, that view is that the idea that, evolution was trying to do this like the evolution has some sort of a conscious thought some sort of an agency behind it that it um was you know was had an end game of humans in mind that that's what it was trying to get to and i wanted to really concentrate on the idea that evolution is just the name of that we gave to a process that we noticed and um, and then establish it as fact. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's just what we saw. And that process is natural selection. And Corey, I think you could you could tell us a little bit about that process. I'm I'm hoping that most people have had you know middle school biology that they're aware of the of the general way that natural selection works, but. Um, just just for just for a refresher, let's talk a little bit about about natural selection. Natural selection is is in a way we could call it the the engine of evolution. Natural selection is natural selection is what occurs um, when organisms change over time. Um, my favorite example of this is the way that it was actually taught to me in school, uh, and that is through the story of the. Um, black pepper moths from the UK. What natural selection does is it promotes certain mutations or genetic uh, variables in organisms who have an advantage because those with an advantage who are more capable of surviving are more likely to make it to the age of procreation and then keep that genetic code moving on. They share their genetics and keep it alive by surviving inside of their environment and then passing their genetic material onto their offspring. The black pepper moths was a really neat way that we were able to observe this. Um, there were some, some birch trees somewhere in England, um, and birch trees have white bark. There was a type of moth 
and the moth would land and, and, and sit on this bark. Those who were white had an advantage because they blended in with the bark, and predatory birds couldn't see them very well. They had natural camouflage. So they wouldn't get snatched off of the bark because the birds couldn't necessarily see them. Then the environment changed. There was an environmental switch, and this is exactly when natural selection begins to really get going. Uh, the Industrial Revolution happened, and human beings built factories in the area. And they started to produce – they burned coal, and they would produce black smoke. The black smoke from the chimneys of the factories – blew into the forest, and dyed the bark black. It darkened all of the trees. Now, all of the white moths that would land on those trees stuck out, and the birds could see them very, very easily and would swoop in and eat them all. So all of the moths started to get decimated. But some of these moths had a mutation that made them black instead of white. And the ones that were black, while previously a prime target for the predatory birds, would land on the now blackened bark and would be camouflaged. So all of a sudden, the white moths were the target, and the black moths were safe. And very, very quickly, since the black moths were more likely to live long enough to procreate and pass on their genetic material, the species changed from being predominantly white to being predominantly black because they had an advantage that was recognized by natural selection. That's essentially a good way of understanding how it operates. And you just get to see it because of the lifespan being so much shorter. It's something that we can, that we can see, right. Uh, moths don't you know, live for very long. You know, they don't have 80 year lifespan. So you can, you can see it happening, you know, sometimes inside of a, inside of a year or less. Uh, and that's not the only example. This kind of, uh, this kind of thing is observable all over the place. Um, especially now that we have uh, cities, this is a new type of environment for wildlife. Um, You've, you've, you've had forests and deserts and oceans and all that for a long time, but, but man-made cities are relatively new. And uh, animals, organisms that live inside of those cities end up being impacted by it because it changes the predators, it changes the climate, changes uh, how their senses would have worked in a different environment, and evolution begins to occur there. We're seeing it in mice in various cities. We're seeing it in snails that live in various cities. Um, we also get to see it in viruses. Right. Yeah, I mean, without the understanding of evolution, we wouldn't have vaccinations for virus like the flu virus and and other things. We we have to understand that evolutionary process, or the whole thing just falls apart. Indeed, it does. There's a. Um, I was just going to say another aspect of that, uh, another example of that. Uh, Natural camouflage is in a, uh, and I can't remember the kind of fish, but they did this this study where the, uh, there was a fish that lived in a, a river system that had small gravel on the uh, floor bed, uh, the riverbed, and so therefore this small fish that typically stayed close to the bottom, the ones that had um, patterns of small dots tended to not get uh, eaten by the uh, fish that swam above because they blended into the ground, the ones that had big dots stood out against the small gravel and got eaten. When they transplanted to a 
another system with bigger uh, rocks at the bottom of the river bend, the small dots got predated upon more rapidly, and then the ones with the mutation of the bigger dots became the norm. And it, I mean, it happens again because of the lifespan of that fish being so short that they can observe it. That is so cool. I, I, I'm always just amazed at what we're able to to observe and learn about this stuff. Evolution is is a fascinating uh, concept. The 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 way that this works in the world, it's it's very powerful. Um, it's it's really really neat to learn about, and it's valuable to understand the way that the natural world works. It's very important that we uh, that we understand the way that this operates, and that we teach uh, future generations what we know about this. Um, so that they can be well equipped to understand the natural world exactly. as well. Exactly. In that, in that sense, uh, Robert Hamilton uh, says, in a global knowledge economy, placing American kids in ignorance of this evolutionary science is not only a tragedy; it's criminal. Mm. Yes. There is there is no good reason to insist that this not be taught in academia. When you've got people who are willing to subscribe to a belief so strongly that they are unwilling to accept scientific fact and therefore want it to be removed from curriculum, you've now got theology breaking right through where it's supposed to be, right through where it's intended to be contained. And it's impacting the rest of the world in a very negative way. So this is the idea of the truth pursuit. Get on uh twitter with me the rest of this week and post other reasons why evolution is true give me peer-reviewed study give me memes if they're actual quotes if they're real information give me youtube videos if it's sound scientific information and let's talk about why evolution is true and let's retweet each other's tweets and let's just saturate for the next week twitter and periscope with the fact of evolution and if you don't believe in evolution, contact me and, and tell me why it's not true. And let's see. Let's see if it holds up to scrutiny. It's going to be really, really fun to follow that conversation uh, moving forward. Um, we really want you guys to follow Scott at El Dutorino on Twitter and talk with him there. You can also contact the show directly. We're both watching that. Uh, uh, at ISM podcast underscore on Twitter and on Periscope. Hopefully we'll get some people that, that, that want to engage on this. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of differing opinions um, about evolution. It is settled science. Um, it's something that you can pretend doesn't exist, but that doesn't change the fact that it does. Um, it's, it's observable. It is proven. It is fascinating. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful part of nature that um, I, I never get bored learning about. That's a beautiful thing with facts is that they remain true even if people don't believe in them. I wonder sometimes how much the concept of sin is encouraging people to reject this kind of science. If Because evolution happens, because evolution has been happening, because of the way that nature works, we know that the Adam and Eve story is not literally true. We know that, uh, like all of the other primates, Homo sapiens evolved. We, we arrived through the process of evolution. 
So the narrative of the Garden of Eden immediately falls apart, which means there's no such thing as original sin, which means there's no need for Jesus to come along and save us all from it. I think that might be part of the resistance to understanding facts, to accepting knowledge, to allowing consciousness to be raised in this country and around the world. Well, it's one of the uh, the biggest sins of all the religions, especially the monotheism, is any the apostasy, the doubt, the not believing this or doubting that this is true. Anything that opens up that thought process is a, a terrible sin and one that they can't afford to let happen. So admitting that any part of these stories is possibly not true puts doubt onto the whole thing. Right. When, you're, when your ideology is so authoritarian that it, it cannot allow for uh, competition, it cannot allow for actual knowledge, if, it, if, you're, if your theology is so threatened by facts, perhaps that should highlight the idea that it's a very, very old series of stories that cannot stand up against the scrutiny of modern understanding, of modern science, of modern knowledge. It, it comes from a time when we didn't know the things about the world that we now know which is why it's so threatened by them. You're bound to get things wrong when you're guessing thousands of years before even understanding what germs are. If it's so threatened by... If it must not be revised because it's the perfect word of God, and yet again and again it's wrong, you should start to see a pattern. You should start to, to stop investing so much time, energy, money, thought into this theology... Stop looking all around you and seeing all of these people who are just constantly sinning and how wrong and immoral they are. And instead worry about how we can actually make the world a better place. How we can encourage free inquiry and free thought. How we can encourage greater discoveries. How we can make everyone feel welcome and included. How we can get rid of the negative narratives that make people feel like they need to stay in the shadows. Like they need to hide who they are. Like they need to stay in the closet. I would not want that for myself, and I don't want it for anyone else. Well, I think that that just about wraps up what we've got for this evening. Um, what we really, really want to do is encourage everybody to check out our new YouTube channel. There's some, there's some podcasts on there that you can enjoy. Um, the, some of our previous broadcasts, those are available for you there. You can get the past shows on iTunes as well so that you can uh, listen to them on the way to work or whenever is convenient for you. Um, we hope that you'll give us a, a follow. You can follow uh, Scott at El Duderino, E-L-D-U-D-E-I-R-E-N-O. You can follow me at Dopinephrine on Twitter and on Periscope. Follow the show, ISM Podcast underscore on both of those platforms. Uh, we need you guys to consider helping us out on Patreon. Uh, the show takes a lot of time, takes a lot of work. We love doing it, but we need you guys to support us uh, on that platform. You can get us at patreon.com slash informed podcast. We really do appreciate that. We're excited to keep the conversation going throughout the next week, and we will see you guys next Wednesday.